You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21, but I'll be focusing on my sermon in verses 1. Well, really verse 1, but verse 1 and 2 is the preamble. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servants, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness. God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, how we thank you for your word and please clear our minds so that we might focus upon what your word says this morning. Would your word be clear to us? Would you draw us closer to Christ? For those who are here today who do not know Christ, who are outside of his covenant and grace, we pray that they would be born again this morning. We pray, God in heaven, that you would strengthen and unify your church through what is preached, and we would know the Lord better for having come and gathered, that you would be brought much honor, and we pray, dear God in heaven, that you would anoint the hearing and the preaching of your word. Amen. I've been preaching in the Ten Commandments now. This is my fourth sermon in the Ten Commandments. And what I tried to do for the first three sermons on the Ten Commandments was lay a foundation so that you could understand what their place in Scripture is. And I demonstrated their unique place of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. That was what I did the first sermon. I tried to explain that it is the natural law of God's covenant, the natural law of God, and it is, the, it is that which underpins or undergirds, undergirds God's covenant with Israel and God's covenant with the church. I attempted to demonstrate that the Ten Commandments is natural law, 
are distinct from the ceremonial and civil laws. And so the ceremonial laws being the sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood and the various celebrations that they had, well, those, those came and, and they went. They were there for a season, and then that season expired at the um, day of Pentecost, really, when the church was formed with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. And so the ceremonial law was there for a season, and it was a shadow of what was to come. And the shadow of what was to come, or it, it, it was a shadow of what was to come, and what was to come was Jesus Christ. And so it all pointed to Jesus. As the shadow points to an actual person or object, so the ceremonies and such pointed to Jesus Christ. Some say that the distinction between the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial law and the Ten Commandments and the civil law is, is a fabrication or it's artificial. I've tried to demonstrate that it's not. don't believe it is, and I think that comes through very clearly in how the Ten Commandments are set apart in Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, is a distinct body of law, distinct from the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, and distinct from the civil law. The civil law was for Israel, specifically when they were in the land, and they're not applied today the same way the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are abiding and authoritative all times and all places. The civil law, we extract the principles and apply it to our own particular situation, but the Ten Commandments are, are essentially the principles that lie behind the civil law. This is the law of first principles. And so I tried to show that there's a distinction Distinction is not artificial, it's not a fabrication, it's there by the very fact that the Ten Commandments was written in stone by the finger of God, which is not the case with any of the other civil statutes or ceremonies or whatnot. It was only the Ten Commandments that were written in stone and put in the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus and the apostles all quoted them authoritatively. And then I demonstrated the abiding authority of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. The Ten Commandments is foundational law to the covenant with Israel and foundational law to the covenant with the church. The Ten Commandments, which is natural law. When I say natural law, what I mean it is the very constitution of nature. God, God, the God who created the world, created the world in such a way that as humanity is going to function properly in this world, humanity must uphold the Ten Commandments. That's how you function properly in this world. You learn how to apply the Ten Commandments, and then you apply them properly, and that is, that's how you function properly. That's why it's natural law. It's a law that's embedded in nature itself. And that natural law is distinct from what I have termed positive law. So natural law is what is embedded in the very constitution of creation, whereas positive law is what God enacts within the terms of various covenants. And so if the natural law undergirds the covenants, this is the moral foundation for the covenants that God has with Israel and God has with the church, the positive law is God enacting law that is not natural law. It's his prerogative, his covenant head, to enact it. And he did that in the cases of the Old Testament ceremonies. And he certainly does it within the case of the New Testament times with our ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism, which we just saw, how we structure the church and so on. Not natural law, positive law. Natural law is the law of God that is applicable to all times and all places by the very fact that it is embedded within the very constitution of reality. That is 
what I mean when I say natural law and attempt to contrast it with positive law. Positive law being the law that God brings into place within his covenantal structures, natural law being the law that undergirds the covenants because it is built into the fabric of the universe. That's the Ten Commandments. The natural law or the moral law of God. Is a remedy to the lawlessness of our day. I wanted to preach on the Ten Commandments. I think this is something that has been poorly taught. Something really for generations, I think, the church has not received proper teaching on. If you go back 100 years, the teaching would be fairly consistent throughout Protestant churches. If you go, out, go back 300 years, even 500 years, the teaching on the Ten Commandments would be fairly consistent. There might be some nuances here and there. But for the most part, it would have been consistent. But for whatever reason, within the last few generations, this has been lost, and the teaching on God's law has fallen on hard times. And that is reflected in, and now we're paying the price for that, because people don't know how to structure families, people don't know how to structure churches, people don't know how to structure societies, and so things are just kind of falling apart at the seams, because people have lacked the wisdom that comes by learning the law of God. And so my hope is to do my little part and restore some of this wisdom that has been lacking and wisdom that is wanting by teaching the Ten Commandments, counteracting the lawlessness of our age. Last week, what I did was I spoke on how to consistently apply the Ten Commandments so we can learn to apply the Ten Commandments in all spheres of life. And so I gave you seven principles last week by which you apply the Ten Commandments, and I trust you will see as I go through this sermon series that I will apply all the commandments consistently. I'm not shooting from the hip, okay? That there's a, a structure and a, and a thought process that is in the Bible that is going into how we apply the Ten Commandments, how I apply them. And that's what I attempted to demonstrate last week. And they should be applied. They should be applied in your hearts. So this should be application to all of your hearts. The Ten Commandments should be applied in your homes. You should be teaching your family to uphold the law of God in your home. And this should be expected. It should be a given in your home. The Ten Commandments should be applied in the church. I mentioned in one of my earlier sermons that John Bunyan said that one of the best ways to vet church members, potential church members, is see the respect and love and obedience they have to the Ten Commandments, which is a sign. If someone is revering them and seeking to honor them, is a sign that they've been born again. It should be applied consistently in your places of businesses and work. So if you're asked to violate God's law, uh, then you can't do that. You're, you're seeking to abide by God's law in your place of employment. There is a law that is higher than your manager, and there's a law that's higher than your boss, and it is God's law. They should be applied consistently in the legislature, and they should be applied consistently in the courts. And then when people learn to apply the law of God consistently in their hearts, in their homes, in their places of business, in their schools, in the legislature, in the court, then you have society functioning the way God intended it to function. That's when it's kind of firing on all cylinders. But when you lose this concept of law and you don't longer know what law is, things start to fall apart at the seams. And I hope that helps you understand what's going on in our world today. 
Why are things falling apart at the seams? Well, people have lost wisdom. They're fools. And they're fools because God's law is no longer taught, no longer believed, no longer practiced. So I'm here to teach you God's law. Today what I'm doing is I'm looking at the preamble. The preamble is verse 1 and 2. I read verse 1 through 21 earlier, but it's strictly verse 1 and 2. I'll teach on that for at least the next two weeks. The preamble. And the preamble to the Ten Commandments contains the truths that ground the law and make it binding. Why is the law of God important? Why is it important? Well, it is important because of what we are taught in the preamble. The preamble gives us the foundation upon which the law is built. This is the preamble, verses 1 and 2. It contains the truths that are necessary in order for the law to be binding. That's the preamble. So, it's not enough for us to have a law for the sake of law. This is what we have a lot of in our society. In all all spheres of life, you certainly see it and probably feel it the most in government, but it goes on everywhere, is that things are legislated and declared to be law, but they're just floating in in air like a balloon. It's just a balloon that's floating there. It's not, it's, it can be blown around, whatever, and it's essentially meaningless. And the only reason it's a law is because someone said it's a law. But there's no authority behind it. And the Ten Commandments are binding because they are built on something firm that will not move. God himself. And the preamble teaches us about God. It's not enough to have law for the sake of law We must have law because it is entrenched and anchored in something that is even greater than the law itself. And that's God. That's where law comes from. He is the lawgiver. And when men and women attempt to give law by their own authority, they're putting themselves in the place of God. He is the lawgiver. So why are the Ten Commandments authoritative? What is the nature of the Ten Commandments, or what at least... What about the nature of the Ten Commandments is it that makes them hold? And what reality are the Ten Commandments founded on? What, if the Ten Commandments are the first principles of law, what are the first principles of the Ten Commandments? So we're getting down, right down to bare basics today. What is the first principles of the Ten Commandments? If this is your most basic form of law, Ten Commandments... This is what God expects of you, your most basic form. What is the first principle of the first principle of law? And the first principle of the first principle of law is God. Without God, you have no law. Law loses its power. Law loses its authority. Law is no longer binding. And so what I'm going to do today, I, I have seven truths about God upon which the Ten Commandments are grounded on. This is what I have, but I'm going to focus on one of them today. And one of them is this, that God is a God who speaks. He is the God who speaks. We'll learn a whole bunch about, more about God next week and the week after. But today what we're looking at is the fact that God is the God who speaks. And so we are a people who should listen. He speaks, we listen. He speaks, we listen. God is the God who speaks. Ten Commandments foundationally find their authority in a God who speaks. And the preamble to the Ten Commandments introduces him, first and foremost, is the God who speaks 
words. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying. You see the emphasis on the speaking? What does it say? God what? Spoke words, saying. That tells you something about communication. He's a God who communicates by means of words. Words matter. They have meaning. They're not whatever you think they mean. They matter. And God is a God who speaks. And the first thing that we learn about God, or one of the first things that we learn about God, is that he is a speaking God who communicates to his people. This is why the preached word is so important in the church. Because it is the communication of God with the people. When I speak from the pulpit on the Lord's Day, what I'm trying to do is simply tell you what the Bible says. And so that you will be recipients of the communication of God by means of the word of God being declared to you. He is a God who speaks. How does he speak? He speaks in the Bible. You want to hear God speak? Open your Bible. Okay? Don't go looking for visions and dreams and all this stuff. Open your Bible. That's the clear communication of God. God speaks. And one of the ways, or sorry, he communicates the Ten Commandments by, one, speaking audibly, and two, writing them down. There's two ways he communicates, but he uses words. Speaking so that all might hear, and inscribing them in stone by his very finger. His communication of the Ten Commandments occurs here in two ways. He audibly speaks the Ten Commandments to the entire nation so that everyone hears God speaks, and he wrote them in stone. So the first way by which he communicates the Ten Commandments is he gathers everyone, the people. Now, this is important because I'm going to make a lot of application out of this. So you might think, well, this is obvious, but I, I really think that we have a lot to learn by God's example here. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10 says, and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stones, Moses speaking, written with the finger of God, and on them we were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. So what's the picture that we get there? The picture we get there is that on the day that the Ten Commandments were given, all of Israel gathered at the mountain. So this is a lot of people. And the entire nation was there. And the mountain was, as you know, it was encircled with smoke and there was lightnings and there was thunders and there was great rumblings. It was terrifying to the people. And the Ten Commandments there were delivered by God audibly. He spoke through the cloud so that the whole host of the nation of Israel, all the hundreds of thousands of people of the nation of Israel, were able to hear him speak clearly, together, as witnesses in one place. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11 through 14 says the same thing. It says, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, speaking to the people, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. So imagine that mountain, if you will. And imagine the hundreds of thousands of people gathering there to see it happen. Then the Lord spoke to you in the midst of the fire. He he audibly speaks. They heard the voice of God. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. 
and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. So what does God do? How does he communicate his law? He communicates it by gathering the people together publicly and speaking audibly to them all. Now, just in me saying that, you should be able to understand where we get some of our system of, um, of parliament and parliamentary democracy. The parliament and the Senate are, are to be the house where the people can go and listen and hear our politicians debate because it ought to be a public event when laws are legislated. And, and the courthouses... Why is there always seats in the courthouses for the public to gather? Because this is to be a public event. When laws are enacted and laws are adjudicated, the very nature of law is that it is not privileged to a special class of people. It is public for all people. It's common. But not only does God speak the law publicly, but God writes the law in stone. So, for example... Exodus 31, verse 18 says, And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the very finger of God. Or Exodus 34, verse 28 says, So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets... The words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so God has the tablets engraved and scripted by his very finger with, with the uh, Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words. The Ten Words are inscripted in the stone. And then Moses wrote them for us. He left the written record for us in the scrolls and in the Bible. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 is where the Ten Commandments are recorded for us. But what does this tell us about God? He's a God who speaks publicly to all people, so that the law is for all people. And then he is a God who inscribes his law. So that not only is the law publicly witnessed by all the people, so all the people bear witness to the law, but all the people have a written record of the law. This is important for us. To understand the written record of God, in this case inscribed in stone, and carried in the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the tabernacle and later in the temple. This is significant. And why is this significant? Because this tells us that all people should have equal access to the law, and there is no secret law kept by a privileged class. This is how true law should function. This is how God intended law to function. So that everybody has equal access to it, and there is no secret law kept by a privileged class. When you have a secret law that's kept by a privileged class, the privileged class enslaves the people that don't have the law. What happened to these people? They'd just been released from slavery. So this is a, this is a law of liberty for free men. And the law of liberty is not a privileged law that only the Pharaoh holds. It is a law that all people get to hear, that all people get to have, and all people have to answer to. 
not just the underlings. This is how law works, or at least it should work in a free society. In a free society, the law, all have equal access to the law, and there is no secret law kept by a privileged class. All people are therefore equal under the law. Moses must answer to the law, and so must the most lowly Hebrew answer to the law. They all have to answer to the law. The law is above them all, and they are all under it. They are all recipients of law. This is what the true rule of law is. Law is unchanging. Law is accessible by all. All can understand it. It is spoken clearly in the presence of all. And there's no secret privileged class who have special access to the law. Christianity is a religion whereby everybody is to have access to the Word of God and His revelation. So that any religion whereby that sees that only a certain group of people have access to the revelation of God, a religion that, that withholds the revelation of God from the people so that the clergy and the leadership only have secret access to it is not a Christian religion. That's not biblical. That's... That's pagan. That's Egyptian religion. That's Antichrist religion. Religions whereby the leadership have a special secret access, insider knowledge to the law, or to the revelation of that religion, is a pagan religion. Christianity is a religion where everyone has access to the revelation of God, and there is no secret revelation of God that is kept by a privileged class. This was the case at Mount Sinai. So by inference, religions who privilege secret theology to clergy are not Christian. This would be the case with Mormonism. So Mormonism, the history of Mormonism, if you're not familiar with it, is a man by the name of Joseph Smith in the United States years ago claims to have received special revelation from God in in a cave somewhere. Written on golden tablets, I think. And then he disseminated that to a group of people through the Book of Mormon. But he was the only one that heard it, apparently. In this case, everyone heard it. So there was accountability. Moses didn't have secret access to the foundation of the universe, which is the Ten Commandments, to the constitution of the universe. That access was for everybody. And it was, everyone was accountable to it, and everyone knew what it was because everybody heard it. Islam, similarly, Muhammad claims to have received the revelation to write the Quran from an angel, but nobody else heard it but Muhammad. That's pagan. That's not Christian. That is the formation of a cult. When an individual claims to have had insider information to God, And now all of a sudden that insider information is binding on everybody who's on the outside except for the one person who has this special inside knowledge that is complete paganism. Similarly, the Roman Catholic Church. They have two sources of authority within the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of Rome. And the Church of Rome has two sources of authority. And the two sources of authority are, one, Scripture, and two, tradition. 
The scriptures are, are is the book. Okay? Used to be that people didn't even have access to that in the Church of Rome until the 1960s. It's exclusively written in Latin, and the people didn't have access to it. They weren't allowed to have it. But now they have it. But the other way they keep the people in bondage in the Church of Rome is, is the authority of tradition. So that scripture and tradition are put on an equal plane. And the only people that have access to the tradition are the clergy. And this, the, the higher up you are, are, are in the clergy, the more access you have. So you get all the way to the Pope of Rome, and he is the highest access to the tradition. And when tradition, which only the clergy know, in, contradicts scripture, which everybody can know, when tradition contradicts scripture, it's the clergy that decides what stands. So that the clergy have complete control over everything, and the people are left in tyrannical religious ignorance. This is why Protestant countries have been the freest countries, because we don't believe in a secret group of people having a secret knowledge to which all people are bound. The Roman Catholic religion is pagan. It's not Christian. They have similar doctrines to us. There are things that they believe that are similar to us, but it is a corrupt, paganized form of Christianity. There is nothing Christian about a secret class of people having secret access to secret information to which everyone else must answer. That is religious tyranny, and it is making merchandise out of the souls of men. There is nothing Christian about Roman Catholicism. There are things that are the semblance of Christianity because the system was once, thousand years ago, perhaps. Well, we know that the Church of Rome did preach the gospel because Paul wrote an epistle to them. But over the centuries, they corrupted, just like the Pharisees did. And it is completely, it is complete paganism. So Mormonism, Islam, Roman Catholicism, they have this special inside privileged group who have special access to the law and to the revelation, and they bind all the other people by it. Beyond that, you could say that our own legal system is pagan. Now, why do I say that? So that the Canadian legal system is pagan. Why would I say that? Well, remember, the Bible, the law of God, God spoke audibly to all the people, and all the people had had equal access to it, which is great and good and wonderful. It's the way it should be. But within our own political and legal system, we have what you call the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it delineates a number of foundational rights, most of which you could find within the Ten Commandments. So, for example, your right to live, security of the persons, well, that's bound up in the commandment, you shall not murder. Okay, so that's your right as a Canadian as per the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So that's all good and true and wonderful. You have the right to worship your God as per the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments. That's all good and right. That's all in the Charter. But the problem is, is that section one of the Charter tells us that the government has the right to restrict our rights and freedoms so long as that restriction can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So that the government can remove those rights that are delineated in the charter so long as it can be demonstrably justified in free and democratic society. So you see the rights, well that's Christian, 
because they're derived from God's law for the most part. But then you see that section one, which tells us that the government can restrict those rights so long as it is demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And who gets to decide what is demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society but a few group of people who wear black robes and sometimes red robes? Judges. So all of a sudden, instead of seeing their job is to uphold the law, now they have special access to determine when it is okay to remove and restrict rights. That's pagan. Because it leaves the people in ignorance. I don't really know what my rights are until a special judge tells me what my special rights are. Thank you, judge. My rights come from you. You see? This is pagan. This is not the way it's designed to operate in this world. And this is how you enslave a people. By having a privileged class hold on to the insider information that bears down on everybody else. It's pagan. And if you understand God's law and how it's supposed to operate, you understand that God speaks audibly to everybody and God writes it down so everybody can see. There's no secret stuff. There's, there's nothing secret about this. It's not left to how you feel this day or what you think or how much fear you have. Right? And you can look at our court cases and our constitutional appeal, and you can see the rulings against us. And, and why, did, why, were, why did we lose our appeal in court? Well, we lost our appeal in court because essentially people were scared and the government had to act, and so it was demonstrably justified to restrict our rights to gather for worship in a free and democratic society. Well, how was I supposed to know that? Because that's not encoded or enshrined within our charter. And so all of a sudden, now you're, losing, you're, you're, you're living under a pagan law. True law, everybody knows what it says. Everybody knows what it says. And if you're, by the way, this doesn't just apply to our government. I can stand here and rail on them all day, but this applies to every form of government, not just civil government. This, this applies to family government. And so the father's role in the family is the, is the ruler of the home, is a role that is strictly derived from God. And a wise father who wants to rule his home in a godly way will understand that his objective as a father is not to make all kinds of rules to dump on his family and not to let his family leave or live as free libertines, so-called, but to simply uphold the law of God in his home. And it takes wisdom to understand how to do that. It's the same thing with church leadership. You know, could you, could you imagine? I, start, I preach a whole sermon on what type of car you should drive. I'm going to tell you today what type of cell phone plan you should be getting. Okay? Like, that's crazy. Tell you what you should be eating for breakfast. No, because my authority as a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is derived. And I can't make up rules as I go along. It's derived from Scripture, and it's derived from a Scripture that everybody has access to. So you can sit there with your Bibles, and you can say, oh, yeah, that's there. I saw that. Or no, it's not there. This is how you should rule your homes. This is how you should rule your 
businesses. This is how you should operate within your employer employment, and this is how we should lead and rule this church. Everybody has equal access to the authority, which is law itself. Law is the authority. The leader is not the ultimate authority. The law is the ultimate authority. And this, by the way, is why we named our academy King Alfred Academy. We have an academy here. It goes from kindergarten, junior kindergarten, to grade 10. Hopefully add grade 11 next year. And why do we name it King Alfred Academy? Well, because King Alfred, the great, came to power in a time that they needed a good leader. And one of the things that had happened in England before King Alfred came to power is that all the laws were written in Latin because it had been, it had been a Roman province. English speakers don't understand Latin. So there was a privileged class that understood Latin, and that privileged class was able to manipulate the people because the laws were written in Latin. People didn't know what the laws said. And so King Alfred decided, what did he decide to do? Well, he says, I'm going to write the law in English. So the law is common for all the common men. And you get the common law. And so this is, this is what true liberty is. It's a structured liberty under a law that is common for every pe person that is derived from God's law itself, which is what Alfred attempted to do. Now, there's probably a bunch of King Alfred students that are wondering, well, why are we learning Latin now? <laughs> you can ask Pastor Fry that on Monday. <laughs> I think there's value in it. There's value in learning another language. There really is. Because that teaches you how to learn more languages. But regardless... This is why we want people to have access to the Bible in their own language. Why do you have access? To, why are we as, as Protestants so big on translating the Bible and you know, send a missionary to a foreign field and we want them to have the Bible in their own language? Why? Well, this is why. So that everyone can read it, everyone can have it, everyone can understand it, and there's no secret class of people that have secret knowledge. This is how God structured his law. This is so important for us. It's so foundational. He spoke it to all the people, and in speaking it to all the people, he then inscribed it so all the people could read it. It's there for everyone. And what I want you to notice about his speaking as I, as I talk about this is how simple and uncomplicated it is. Did you see that? Like, like Ten Commandments, so many of your children, I hope, are memorizing them. I know all the kids at King Alfred have to memorize them. The Ten Commandments. And, and kids can memorize the Ten Commandments and understand them. This is a simple, logical, uncomplicated law. Easy. Umberto Casuto, he was an Italian Jew, and I talked about him a bit when I preached through Genesis, so some of you might remember that catchy name, Umberto Casuto. Well, he wrote a good commentary on Exodus also. And in his commentary on Exodus, he notes that ancient Egyptian law was verbose and confusing. Ancient Mesopotamian law was absurd and superstitious. So you can imagine the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, and they'd been under this tyrant Pharaoh who has secret access to the law, and the law is confusing and verbose. They don't understand it. They're kept in ignorance. And now they're released into the desert. 
And what does God do? But on Mount Sinai, he gives them a law that they all hear, and as ignorant slaves, they all understand. People who hadn't been educated, they've been working as slaves for years. For the first time in generations, they're free, and for the first time, they now have a law that they can understand. What a relief that would have been to them. You see how simple the law is, how uncomplicated it is. It's not convoluted. It's not superstitious. It's not absurd. It makes sense. It's understandable so that even children can memorize it and children know what the Ten Commandments say. It's really quite beautiful. It's structured freedom. And if a nation's laws are to be Christian, they should be simple, logical, and understandable. Confusing, verbose, and absurd laws is a pagan, satanic innovation. And some of you would wish, as you wrote your, did your taxes this year, that Canada Revenue Agency understood that. Don't you? Don't you? How many of you had a wonderful time filing your personal income tax this year? Because it's so easy, isn't it, to understand? Even a child can understand our tax code. Not really. And that's your personal income tax. How about you small business owners? Boy, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful task, isn't it? Right? Well, that's, that's a pagan system where it's convoluted, hard to understand, not clear, that is built up in a society that has been given over to their own depravity. It's a judgment of God to live under that level of tyranny where you actually have to get stressed out and give days or pay someone a bunch of money to do this lest you go to jail. That's not freedom. I'm not saying we shouldn't pay taxes, but what I'm saying is the way the tax code is structured in this country is enslaving because it's convoluted. There's an entire class now of you have to have an entire class of professionals who go to school for years just to learn one part of the tax system, not even the whole thing. And I can thank God for those professionals. Some of you are professionals like that. Hey, we need you. Because if we don't have you, we're in big trouble under this pagan system we're living in. So thanks for learning it on our behalf and helping us out. We have to have that now. But that is a sign of paganism that you have a special class of individuals who now are the only ones that can give their lives to understanding the system. This is not a good thing that we're living in. The same could be said with our legal code in this country. Where a lawyer has to go to school for years and years just to understand one system of law, one part of law. It could be environmental law, it could be corporate law, it could be family law, you name it. That's just a few of them. And then become an expert in that. Why? Because it's so convoluted. And thank God for the lawyers that can help us for that with that stuff. But it is a convoluted mess, unlike the Ten Commandments, which are simple, logical, and understandable. So that even a child can understand. And, the, and then you think about the level of regulations that people have to live under who operate businesses, the business regulations. There's an entire industry that's built up around compliance. Some of you understand what I mean when I say that. This is not freedom. 
This is slavery, where you're actually having to spend your money to figure out how you can comply with these people so they don't lock you up or ruin your life. They basically hold a gun to your head. This is not the Ten Commandments. People say, oh, God's law is so terrible. It's so miserable. I, I can't stand the burden of ever thinking about God's law. It's just too much for me. Are you kidding me? How would you like this to be your law code? This is structured freedom right here. These are a people who were just released from slavery. To them, this would be a breath of fresh air. It's not some guy standing over me going to strike me across the back with a whip just because he doesn't like me today or he had a bad evening. This is structured freedom. And then, oh my, then you think about the global warming stuff that people are having to deal with right now and environmental regulation. How about the COVID stuff? A thousand different laws every day changed. That's not Christian, that's pagan. It's completely unbiblical. You wake up one morning, well, science has changed. Right? Science is, and this is the problem, it's not science, it's scientism. I've written about this. What's scientism? It's a political philosophy that entrusts the legislation to a small group of experts with inside knowledge. That's scientism, not science. Science is concrete because it is discerned from God's naturally revealed creation. Scientism is a bunch of experts who are hired by the government to tell us what nobody else can figure out but them. Scientism. It's in slavery is what it is. And this is a good lesson in leadership for anyone. Simple instructions that are clear, short, and unchanging. If you want to learn how to lead your home, that's how you do it. Don't burden your kids with a million different changing rules. Simple, clear instructions that everybody can understand and that are upheld. Simple, easy, right? Or if you want to lead a business or be a good manager or leadership in church, this is what we have to keep in mind. God gave us 10 commandments that didn't change, not 10 million commandments that change every day. To have a constant moving target in law is completely pagan. And I think parents should keep that in mind as they lead their families. Too many rules will stifle your children. You'll all of a sudden become like the government to them. But you keep the rules clear, basic, foundational. Kids can understand them and even memorize them. And that'll save you a lot of trouble and a lot of headache. God's commandments are what? They're for all the people, everyone. There's no special class of people. And God's commandments can be understood by all the people. God's commandments can be read by all the people. God's commandments are clear. They're logical. They're not convoluted and mysterious. They're really quite wonderful and simple. And it's the, one of the most beautiful things about the Ten Commandments is the simplicity of it. It's so simple. Good preaching should be clear preaching. Good communication should be, should be clear communication, concise communication. And this is the way God wrote His law. And so what do we learn about God from the Ten Commandments? Well, we learn that He is a God who speaks. And we learn that from the preamble. 
And why are the Ten Commandments authoritative and binding as per the preamble? Because they were spoken by a God who speaks. He speaks clearly, and He speaks to all the people. He speaks His Word. The Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words. What are we told about Jesus in John 1? He's the Word. God didn't just communicate to us by the Ten Commandments. He communicated to us in Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. And the Ten Commandments can tell you how to live, and Jesus will tell you how to live. And the Ten Commandments can condemn you for disobedience, and if you disobey Christ unrepentantly, He will condemn you for disobedience. The Ten Commandments can sentence you to eternal hellfire if you don't abide by them. And Jesus, if you don't obey Him, He can sentence you to eternal hellfire. And the Ten Commandments, they cannot save you from condemnation and guilt and judgment, but Jesus can. He is an even better revelation of God because what the Ten Commandments can do, He can do. But what the Ten Commandments are incapable of doing, He does. And what does He do? He forgives the violators of the law because He died on the cross in the place of those who are lawbreakers. So I hope as you come to the Ten Commandments and you hear their simplicity and you hear their clarity and you're bound by their authority, I hope you feel conviction for your sin, but I hope you don't leave it there. I hope you run to the one to whom they point. And that's Jesus Christ, our great Savior, who did what the law could not and cannot and never will be able to do. Saves sinners, forgives sinners, atones for sinners, satisfies God on behalf of sinners. I hope that brings comfort to you. You're not walking around afflicted in your consciences for all of your guilt all the time. But instead, you come to the Lord and you have that great burden of your guilt lifted because Jesus does what the law cannot do. Yeah, the law is perfect, but it wasn't designed to save you. Jesus is perfect and he was born to save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray to you and we thank you for your law. We thank you for your pure and good revelation. We thank you for your love for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that all here would know the forgiveness that is available in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.